Welcome to the podcast for 1776 Forward. We're the grassroots movement that's crowdsourcing activism for the cause of philosophical liberalism. Stand up. Speak out. Okay, let's get started. Today, I'm delighted to have our other new podcast host, Robert Garmong, who is coming with us all the way from China. Robert is an American philosopher, but who has now lived in China for many years. And I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation about what it's like to be an American in China these days. So welcome. I'm so glad you're here with us. So thank you for having me. It's very nice to talk with you. Uh, yeah, just uh, so people know a little bit, I'm Robert Garmong. I have now been living in China for almost 12 years. Amazing though that sounds. Uh, and I'm, I was a university instructor in the States and I had opportunity to come over to China and teach at a university here where I taught Western civilization and philosophy, and uh, including a class titled The Moral Foundations of Capitalism at a government university in the People's Republic of China. So that was quite an experience. Uh, I don't think I would be able to teach that now. They've clamped down quite a bit, but uh, I taught Ayn Rand's anthem to my Chinese students and uh, got quite an interesting and, and mixed but interested reaction from that. Uh, had quite, a, a, quite an exciting experience. I really enjoyed that time. Uh, I wouldn't want to go back to university teaching now, but uh, uh, once my son was born, I moved on to somewhat more um, lucrative jobs. And uh, I'm now uh, a teaching manager at a Montessori school here in Dalian, China. So thank you for having me. It's great meeting you, great talking with you. I'm not meeting you, but meeting your audience. Well, you're definitely meeting the audience for the first time. And I'm glad everyone is having an opportunity to meet you. And I'm looking forward to seeing the future episodes you'll be able to do for our 1776 Forward podcast. So why don't we get started and tell us a little bit about what it's like in China nowadays. I think in the US, we don't really have a, a clear grasp of what it's actually like to be experiencing this pandemic and this global political situation from the inside of China. Yeah, it's, it's um, I, I, I'm somewhat surprised at like the two different worlds, especially with the pandemic. And um, you know, as we speak, uh, my city is in its now third lockdown. Uh, we had last year at this time, uh, which was the Chinese New Year, so we were on holiday anyway. We were supposed to start back on the 2nd of February, but our two-week two -week holiday turned into about a five or six month holiday. So we started back up again in June. And then my particular city had another outbreak in late July. 
And so we were shut down again for the entire month of August. And then we started back up again. And then just at the beginning of January, we had another outbreak in town and we've now been shut down for almost a month. And it's likely it will go another month. So, and now to, to give you an idea of what causes this type of shutdown, in my city last year, we had a total of, in the first outbreak in, in last February, we had a total of about 30 cases. And that's in a city of three and a half million, which by Chinese standards is a mid sized city, not the same size as Chicago, but here it's like third tier city. So out of three and a half million people roughly, we had, I don't know, 20 some cases total. And they shut the entire city down for several months. And the schools in particular were shut down for, as I say, about five or six months. Now the current outbreak had a total of 20, again, 20 some cases. Maybe it was up to 40, most of them asymptomatic, no death. And I think there were the symptomatic cases were about a dozen. So again, for that, they shut down. This time they didn't shut down the whole city, but all the schools were shut down. So they've been extremely aggressive in shutting things down. And uh, unfortunately, those draconian shutdowns I think are a gross overreaction, but they they work. You know, if you have a virus, it needs hosts, and if you don't let the hosts interact with each other, they don't transmit it. So uh, at least we're not uh, suffering from the constant infections and deaths that that I guess are going on in states. And when we were not on lockdown, it was essentially completely free. So I went to a huge Chinese wedding with 300 people in attendance and no one wearing masks. We all had to wear masks on the train and bus and whatever to get there. But once you're there, it's, it's as though there had never been a virus. So um, there have been some places that have dealt with it, I think, in more reasonable ways, like Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore, that had similar success rates without the draconian shutdown. But uh, it is what it is. And, and so when I hear my friends say they, they can't go out anywhere, or they, uh, I was in the Apple store a while back, and, and a friend from the state said, Apple store, we can't go near an Apple store. You know, when we were not shut, and, and even now with that schools are shut down, the shopping malls are still open. You have to swipe an app to go in, it takes a temperature with the little infrared guns, but uh, life is going on pretty much as normal. Uh, if you don't work for a school, you're pretty much okay. So it's, it's quite different as far as the pandemic reaction. Um, and I wish they weren't doing the draconian shutdowns that they have. I wish they'd adopted more of the Taiwanese model, but um, at least at least I can uh, knock wood, not worry too much about getting sick and dying. 
So tell us a little bit more about your perspective being in China, an American in China, and looking at America from the outside. Because my sense is that through all the craziness we've been experiencing, my own experience as an American living in the midst of the States, is that we're so wrapped up in the day-to-day right now of what we're experiencing, it's hard to see what it might look like from the outside. So I'm curious your perspective of being that American in China on the outside looking in. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's quite different, and the pandemic in particular has just has the Chinese people scratching their heads. Um, they think Americans are crazy. They, they look at, for example, the mask wars and uh, the the fact that people resist wearing a, a face mask when in China it's quite normal under normal circumstances if you if you feel a scratch in your throat, throw on a face mask before you go out. And nobody thinks anything of it. It doesn't, you know, you don't get a sideways glance for wearing a mask. And certainly no one uh, accusing you of being a snowflake or whatever. Uh, and, and the idea, Chinese people are funny in their attitude towards authority because uh, if you've ever watched them drive the wrong way down a one-way street to avoid having to go up and do a Yui, you would think they're completely lawless. And yet there's also this sort of uh, uh, kind of, when they assess that it's well-founded, there's also respect for legitimate authority. So for example, a Chinese equivalent of a Dr. Fauci would not be the political lightning rod that he's been in the States. And if a doctor uh, you know, says, based on their experience and their expertise, that wearing masks is in fact efficacious, they're not going to march in the streets to say, I don't want to wear a mask. They'll accept that and, and, um, you know, and uh, right and wrong. You know, there's a tendency to accept authority when I, as an American, would never do it. But uh, we, it also means that when the driver on the bus says, put your mask on, for the most part, people put their masks on. Uh, now, I did watch, a, a, early in the, the shutdown, I watched an old man. And, and I, I, I have no problem wearing the mask, especially in crowded public areas. If I'm walking down the street, then I don't. But when I go into the supermarket or when I get on a bus or a subway, I put the mask on. Um, and it, to me, it's, it's just common sense. Uh, but I also took a great deal of pleasure. I watched an old man get on a bus. Um, this was probably last, it must have been April. So in the, the main throws of the lockdown. It, it, maybe it gotten a little old by that time. And he did not want to wear his mask. And the bus driver made him put it on and he fished around in his pocket for this old draggled looking thing. And he put it on like this well, until he got to his seat and then put it back on. Well, the bus driver saw him take it off and, and stopped the bus and said, put your mask on. The, the guy said, I'm going to die any day now anyway. What do you care? 
took the bus drivers and oh, you got to put the mask on. And he put it on and he was just cursing up one side and down the other. And I, I'm, you know, as an American who wears the mask, I nonetheless was like, you go, brother. He was like, he reminded me of some of my fam more crotchety family members from back in the state. So there is that kind of anti-authoritarian strain. But in general, when the experts say that you should wear a mask, the Chinese mostly, and that's the only such incident I've observed in a year of the pandemic. So when the Chinese uh, went off on a big long tangent there, but you asked, how did the Chinese view things in the States? The notion that there are hundreds of thousands of people dying. And it's just that the Chinese people think we're all completely insane. Uh, and they, they, may be, they may be right to some extent. Um, on the other hand, the Chinese are a little too willing to accept the complete lockdown. You know, the, the fact that, for example, travel is going to be heavily, heavily restricted during the upcoming Chinese New Year, which is uh, now the, the Chinese New Year is coming in early February. And for viewers who are not familiar with this, this is the largest mass migration in the world. It beats the Hajj in the Middle East. It beats anything you can throw up against it. Uh, there are literally hundreds of millions of people who have moved from their ancestral homes to the big cities for work. And they get to go home. And, and they may have left their children behind being cared for by grandparents. They may have left their entire family. They may, have, they may own an apartment back home. They, they live in a company dorm in Shenzhen or Guangzhou or some other major industrial center. <clears throat> and they have two weeks of time to go home and see their family. And it's like Christmas, New Year, Thanksgiving, and every holiday we celebrate wrapped into one. So it is, it is extremely, extremely culturally important over here. And they're putting heavy travel restrictions. They're trying to prevent people from going home at all. They're giving cash incentives to migrant workers to stay in their company dorm over the holiday. Uh, so it, it's going to be a major disruption to the upcoming holiday. And yet people are mostly tolerating. Um, and and the, the shutdown of schools is a major imposition on families. And people tolerate it. So I think they're a little too tolerant of the shutdown. But on the other hand, you know, they wear the mask, they keep their distance. People who normally would be bumping you out of the way to get on the bus are staying six feet apart. So it's, it's, it's quite different. And they look at the US and say, with 400,000 people dead, and what people are worried about is whether they have to wear a mask when they go into the CVS. It doesn't compute for Chinese people. I think it's interesting, the different cultural attitudes you're pointing out. And 
I'm curious to even hear more your perspective of how that compares to both America today and America of the past, because I know in your work as a philosopher, you studied the history of liberalism from Locke to Mill. So I think you have a certain perspective on even what the, the spirit of liberty or the attitude toward liberty was in historical times, and maybe how that's still true or different from what we're seeing in the West today. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And in a sense, there's a continuity. Um, in a sense, there's a discontinuity. Now, now my publications have mostly been on the history of the concept of freedom or liberty and what it meant throughout history. And, and as you mentioned, particularly in the difference between philosopher John Locke and John Stuart Mill. And in, in the American tradition, we were always based on the ideas of John Locke, first and foremost, the idea that uh, there are inalienable rights to life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness, and that uh, you should have absolute freedom from coercion. And Locke himself was very clear that he means physical force uh, by the state primarily, but the state as the agent to protect you from physical force from your fellow man. And that, that was the traditional understanding that informed the American founding. And I think always was the, the dominant philosophic understanding of freedom. But along with that, and, and I think you know, Americans were also uh, not traditionally philosophers. There wasn't, you know, the, the people who first came to the U.S. were practical, get it done people. You didn't come over in the 1600s because there was a sinecure at Harvard or Princeton waiting for you. You came over because you wanted to clear a plot of land and, you know, make, make life for yourself with your hands. And so there was also, along with that philosophic understanding, we would call it a philosophic understanding of liberty, there was also a kind of, um, it's sometimes termed pragmatism, but I don't think it's necessarily pragmatism in the philosophical sense. It, it's a, an orientation toward the practical that came with a certain scoffing at the egghead intellectuals, the, the pointy-headed academics. And uh, that had a good side and a bad side. And the bad side, I think, is unfortunately coming out a lot more today. And that bad side is the notion that the pointy-headed academic or the intellectual or the authority uh, doesn't know anything real. They've just, they just live in the ivory tower of abstraction and impractical ideas. And so if something is based on some authority, then I'm, I'm inherently going to push against it or, or outright reject it. And I think that's a lot of what's going on now with people protesting against masks and so on, um, social distancing and all that. Uh, I think there's a lot of, or, or people even 
flat out rejecting the notion that there is a deadly virus out there that actually killed close to half a million people. I, I hear people still arguing that it's no different from the flu, when I think that's just clearly preposterous. But it's preposterous based on research by authorities in the field. And so if you begin with a kind of rebellion against or rejection of uh, the, the, the arrogance of the intellectuals, then there's a tendency to, to, to want to just say, phooey on all that, you know, I'm not sick, my family's not sick, so it's, it's not real. And then uh, alongside that, you asked specifically about the notion of freedom, and I think that's, that's really on point here. Uh, the, the country was founded on a philosophic idea, John Locke was very influential on the American founders, but that's not necessarily how people understand that idea. And in history, people have, have not, necessarily, not necessarily done any serious thinking about what they mean by freedom. And I think more and more nowadays, it's come to just mean you can't tell me what to do. And so if I go into Walmart and Walmart has a policy that says you must wear a face mask, they're violating my liberty. Or Josh Hawley has his book yanked by his publisher, and he then says that they've violated his First Amendment freedom of speech. No, they haven't. First Amendment protects you from government censorship. It doesn't say that Simon & Schuster must publish your book, but there's that sort of visceral feeling that if anybody doesn't accept what you want, then they're violating your freedom. And that's where I think that, that again, and a tendency toward anti-intellectualism in the U.S. has really come to do a lot of damage to our ability to deal rationally with the current situation. That's fascinating. Do you want to say more about what you think is the appropriate approach to liberty? How do you wish people were acting in the U.S. that would keep them perhaps in line with the vision that John Locke originally had and the founders? 1776 is in the title of this podcast, and I think that's for good reason. That's kind of the guidepost that I go back to. Uh, the, the notion of freedom as freedom from coercion. Now, that doesn't mean freedom in the sense of whim worship or emotionalism or uh, disregard for facts of reality. Uh, so, so, for example, there's the, the line that uh, uh, from Dostoevsky uh, that, that, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's not freedom if two plus two must equal four. Well, that's a misunderstanding of freedom. Freedom doesn't mean my asserting of untruth or my irrational assertion. Freedom means freedom from coercion. So I think in the current situation, looking at the, just, just from the angle of the pandemic, uh, to me, the, the 
I don't like the Chinese government approach, which is to just come in with government decree that says lock everything down. On the other hand, I personally don't have a problem with the CDC existing and issuing guidances that say, here's how you should stay safe in, the, in a pandemic. I also don't have a problem with government doing contact tracing and government uh, being responsible for testing, because I think that is a case of uh, government action where it, it's protecting your freedom, maybe not from physical force in the sense of a punch, but if I'm walking around spreading viruses, then it's as if I were polluting your air or uh, otherwise harming your ability to live your life. So there is a role for government in managing a pandemic, not in shutting down the entire economy. Now, what exactly the government can and should do in, in this kind of situation? Now, I would leave it for a philosopher of law and uh, probably in consultation with an epidemiologist to draw the boundaries. But we can look at, at models such as Taiwan, where, for example, from the very start of the pandemic, they were very aggressive about testing. They had a, a very uh, rigorous testing regimen for anyone who came in from mainland China in particular, but from the rest of, from the whole rest of the world eventually. And they had quarantining. Uh, if you if you had symptoms of any kind, if you had a, a temperature from the get go, you you were immediately quarantined. And I, I'm not sure about the current status there, but for I think they've had a little bit more of a recurrence. But for most of this pandemic, they've done quite well with that. So they had a very aggressive uh, policy on anyone coming into the country. They had aggressive testing and they had uh, contact tracing so that if you were found to have the disease, then everybody you'd come in contact with got tested and, and quarantine and so on. That's the sort of thing that I would see as the role of government. Now, more importantly for the individual, I think the, the government should be the least important factor in pandemic response. For the individual, it's to be rational. It's to recognize that this is real and it's not, it's not as bad as it could be. Uh, it's not the zombie apocalypse. It's not the walking dead, but it is a serious issue and it should be taken seriously. And reason says that in that kind of situation, if I'm in a public place, and particularly given that this is something where there is asymptomatic transmission that represents, depending on the study, a, a majority of the spread of the virus, it's only rational to say, I'm not 100% certain that I don't have it. I'm not 100% certain that the person sitting next to me doesn't have it. So I better put the mask on. And it's, it's a relatively minor imposition that doesn't cause you to go too far out of your way. It's only reasonable. 
And if you take that as somebody says at, at the Walmart, I must wear my mask, therefore I'm going to cause a YouTube fuss, then I think you're not understanding what freedom means and you're not understanding what reason Thank you for that clarification. So I think we're almost out of time, but were there any last points you wanted to make or let people know where else they can find out more of your work? Oh, yeah. Um, we didn't even talk about the rest of what's been going on in the space, the political situation, <laughs> which I think has also been quite an embarrassment. Uh, and just to put a cap on the discussion of my perspective as an American living overseas. When I came to China more than a decade ago, America was still seen as the height of competence and economic success and a political ideal. Not to the Chinese government necessarily, but to the Chinese people. And the students I was teaching wanted to know how they could get some of what America had. And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of propaganda and a lot of gov the, the government has been increasingly going the opposite direction. But also just from what the people can see, America has not put a good face to the world. If there's a, a, a pandemic that's killed 400,000 people and what people are incensed about is having to wear a face mask at Walmart, then there's something off and it's visibly off to the rest of the world. And one thing about being living overseas is I can see the U.S. as if through a mirror or as if through a, a telescope, I guess, not from the inside, but from the outside. And it's not pretty. Um, when we look at the US Capitol being stormed and, and state capitals having armed protesters breaking in with you know, assault rifles in the seat of government, this is not a good look for our country. It's been very embarrassing to me. And I think America is going through a really terrible time. And I hope we can go back to that spirit of 76 in the true sense, the sense of the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, of liberty as freedom from coercion. And that does not include uh, the freedom to endanger other people. It doesn't include the freedom to threaten people's lives with your AK-47. It does mean the freedom to live your life without interference of coercion from other people or from the government. Uh, so that that's sort of my perspective as someone who's uh, been very frustrated seeing America from an overseas perspective. As for my own work, um, I don't have a website quite yet. I'm working on that at the moment, but you can find me on Facebook and other social media 
R Garmon is my contact. That's R G A R M O N C. And uh, very shortly, I'm I'm just finishing up my first Amazon publication, which is on. Uh, it's basically uh, an extended discussion of philosophy. Who needs it? The lecture by Ayn Rand. The title is Why Philosophy: The Importance of Ayn Rand's Objective. And that's uh, unit one of a series that I'm planning as an introduction to Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which will eventually be a, an online course available and a series of booklets available on Amazon, all to be uh, announced shortly. Wonderful. And I'm also looking forward to seeing the contributions you'll continue to make to this podcast from your really unique and interesting perspective. Thank you again for joining us today for this interview. I'm glad the audience got a chance to meet you and looking forward to seeing what comes next. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure and nice to see you again. All right, bye everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can become a member for free and join our 1776 Forward community on Locals.com. See you there.